Thank you for tuning in to Adversity University, and welcome to class. Hey everyone, it's Sean. Just had a, a new friend that I met recently through uh, some, some roller hockey, Jacques Lamoureux. He came on, he had a tremendous career at the Air Force Academy playing Division I hockey, and he's been through a lot in his life. And I feel really fortunate that I, I was able to meet him because we had a conversation about a week ago driving back from some roller hockey games. and he was able to give me some advice for some stuff that you know i'm trying to help a person important to me with and he's been through it so i i knew that this would be a fantastic episode and we just finished it up and it was you know everything and more that i could have hoped for uh garrett what do you think about today's episode i think that he kind of embodies everything that we talk about you know it's going through those tough times and being able to impart your wisdom on other people um, and just some of the quotes that I have, uh, vulnerability is a strength, not a weakness. Um, let me see here. I've got so much written down. It's hard to find everything. Um, I got one. More. Oh, be accountable to who you are and what you do. Um, and those are two of the many, which is, you know, it was ridiculous what uh, some of the great insight that he, he gave to us. And one thing that I didn't say to him that... Um, I wish I did during the thing, but he said that he felt like he missed on opportunities because of some of the things that he had gone through. But if he would have made a decision to go a different route, uh, north instead of south, or south instead of north, he wouldn't have had those opportunities to, to go through anyways. So in hindsight, it's always twenty twenty. But in this situation, if you're ever thinking about making a, a very tough decision, um, like ending your life, think about all that lies ahead of you. Um, and he mentions that in the podcast, he talks about, um, you know, finding things worth living for and the enjoyments in life. So another great episode with unbelievable insight. He opened up so much, uh, a lot more than I ever would have thought anybody would. And I think that, uh, the guests are really going to enjoy this one. Yeah. And something else unique is I actually, uh, I'm sitting in Jock's basement with him right now. He had me over for dinner, cooked me some some halibut, yeah, halibut cod that he caught. Halibut and ling cod that we caught and processed ourselves. And yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. Jog, what do you think about uh, the episode and what do you hope people can get from your stories? I, I thought the, uh, the episode was great. I, I, I always try to jump on opportunities um, to talk about these things, uh, my experiences, because I, I do believe that in sharing somebody in the audience is going to walk away saying, Hey, I'm going, I've felt those exact same feelings. And you know, when you're going through it, it's weird. Like you can't, and if you, and if you're with someone out there and you're going through it, it is a weird feeling to like you read about it and you, people say it to you, but you always feel like you're going through it by yourself and you're the only one who feels how you feel. And that's not the case. Like we all, have things in our life that we've gone through and in in hardships like if you've gotten to be in your late 20s and 30s and you haven't had any like i i don't like you must be living in a bubble because we all um go through things whether it's a death in the family uh loss of a loved one whatever whatever it is depression um sickness like anything like we have our hardships and and I think one of the biggest things is just people knowing, okay, it's not, I'm not the only one going through it. And, and, and there are a lot of people out there who've gone through some hard things and they've gotten through it 
but those are the people that we need the most to come out and want to share and like uh, be willing to be vulnerable and exp- and explore those situations through conversation like to talk about them so that other people can can learn from what they've gone through like we talked about at the at the start of like the whole point of or one of the purposes of your podcast is so that other people can learn from people others experiences so they don't maybe have to walk through those same shoes like that's the that's the whole point yeah and i was thinking about it recently you know this is going to be almost episode 30 and we've had a very wide variety of people on we had the head coach of army we had mike boyle a leader in strength and conditioning you know larry robinson a hall of fame nhl player we had the nasa flight director on a couple episodes ago and all these people from all these different walks of life, it's a lot of unique stories and different situations, but the last two to me have been very powerful. Um, we've talked a lot about you know, mental health and depression, and I think that right now with the quarantine and the shutdown, people feel more alone than ever. They're losing some of their outlets. You know, We talked about in this episode with Jacques, when he was able to go to the rink, he, he was able to let go of everything that was weighing him down. And I think that right now at this shutdown more than ever, people are really struggling with mental health. So I think that we've been very blessed to have the two guests that we have had on the last two weeks. And I really hope that we're able to spread their message. Let's kick it on over to Jacques Lamoureux. Monument Hockey Academy provides the highest level of developmental training available today. With intense focus on individual skills including skating, stick handling, shooting, game awareness, and competition, MHA offers players the opportunity to take advantage of up to 15 hours of on and off ice time per week to continue their personal development outside of team-specific training. Our coaches bring Tier 1, college, and pro experience and are trained in the latest and most cutting-edge programming in the world. Our academic support staff provides guidance and coaching with a variety of educational platforms, including online, in-person, and hybrid models, while ensuring students' NCAA eligibility from middle school through graduation. At MHA, our goal is to provide an opportunity for every player to reach his or her maximum potential, both on and off the ice. For more information or to schedule a visit, go to monumenthockey.com. I'm very excited to be here in person with today's guest. He was the leading scorer in the entire NCAA in the 08-09 season, which got him fourth place in the Hobie Baker voting, which is college hockey's MVP. This also earned him the Atlantic Conference Player of the Year Award and second team All-American. The following season, he was again named to the first team All-Conference. His senior season, he was voted to the second team All-Conference, MVP of the playoff tournament, and voted to the Lowe's Senior Class All-American first team. Aside from the individual awards, He was a major part of Air Force winning three conference championships in his four years. He is currently a captain in the Air Force, instructing cadets at the United States Air Force Academy. Thank you for joining the podcast, Jacques Lamoureux. Hey guys, uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, that's, uh, I'll correct one thing you did say, I was not the leading scorer, I was the leading goal scorer, but not the leading scorer. Yeah, sorry, my mistake. But we don't care about assists, everybody likes goals, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I was going to say goals probably count more. Uh, but diving into it, what was it like growing up in Grand Forks, North Dakota? Uh, it was cold. No, <laughs> it was, it, it, I, I liked it. I, obviously it's hard to, I, I love my hometown. Um, I've moved a lot since then. I like, moved away from home when I was 
a junior in high school, played juniors like you guys both know. And uh, a lot of the people you have on your, on your podcast, they, they played junior hockey. And uh, so they know what it's like to move away. And um, so I, I get back maybe once a year if I'm lucky, but I, I loved it. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot else to do. All my friends played hockey and, and I was, uh, Sean and I were having dinner here before we, we hopped on and, and we were, uh, he was asking, we were talking about the cold weather and, uh, excuse me, all the rinks that Grand Forks has, uh, indoor ice sheets, but we also have outdoor ice sheets and we had a pond right by our house that we, uh, one of our neighbors, like it was by a little Creek and they like bulldozed out a piece, uh, some land and let the water drain into this open area. And it was like the size of an actual hockey rink uh, with a huge cement retaining wall on one side. And then we had some floodlights out there and we could play hockey outdoors pretty much all winter, every single day. It was, it was absolutely awesome. And then all the neighborhood kids would come out and play and it was hockey hours and hours a day, every single day. It was, it was, it was pretty unique. Kind of like what you th- you, you think about the old the winter classic now and playing outdoors like that's what we loved at every single day it was pretty awesome well, you mentioned unique and you're one of six kids in your family and all six of you have had tremendous hockey careers uh your sisters have won a combined six olympic medals two gold and four silver for usa uh you mentioned you all played on that outdoor pond right in the neighborhood but how do you think that all six of you were able to play at such a high level uh Good genes, I guess, for one. My mom was a swimmer. My dad played played hockey as well. But I think it was just what we, what we grew up with. My my dad and my mom very much instilled this attitude of working hard. And no matter what you're going to do, like you're going to have a good work ethic and you're going to do everything to the best of your ability. And I think by virtue of where we grew up, everybody kind of played hockey. We played all other sports. Um, some of us were good at other sports, uh, but we all gravitated to hockey. I mean, my sisters, I think could have been Olympians on the soccer team if they wanted to pursue that. Like they were, they were awesome athletes and whatever they decided to do. But I think the fighting Sioux being the college team that was there in our hometown, and our dad playing there winning a couple national championships for that for the Sioux and and I think we just like loved loved that like they were the big guys in town and my like our dad played there we all like loved hockey and all our friends played hockey and uh, it was just the easy sport to gravitate to and I think it was the most fun and and then you got like because we're all relatively same age my older brother's 36 I'm 34 Pierre Paul's 33, Mario's 32, and my twin sisters are 31. So once we were all kind of uh, old enough, I mean, we didn't really need anybody else to be able to play a game. Like we had six yeah. people who could play. Three on three. Three on three, yeah. And it was uh, – so it, it was just – and we it was just like really good friendly competition all the time. Like we were just always pushing each other to to want to be better. And it was, I think – if you ask any of the teammates that any of us ever played with, that was probably, that's one thing that's like, yeah, those guys, they worked hard. Some of us had said a little bit more talent than others, but we all worked very hard. And that was uh, an attitude and a characteristics that our parents, especially my dad really instilled in us. And, and I think we just kind of took that forward and uh, into our careers, wherever that took us college pro or 
uh, in the Olympics. And, and I, I don't know, just super grateful for that for sure. Yeah. That's phenomenal. I mean, you think about cultures and States and, you know, North Dakota fighting Sioux, at least for us, we're biased, but that's a hockey school. You know, the Minnesota Gophers is a hockey school. Whereas you go to some of these other schools, you know, even air force, well, most people probably think of their football team. Yep. Or their that's, basketball that's team. a fair, that's a very fair statement. Yeah. Yeah. So North Dakota really helped you guys out. It was, it was unbelievable. And, and with my dad, they, they, it was the only show in town really. And then my dad playing there, we had, we had easier access to, to UND than other folks did. I remember growing up, uh, my dad would help with the goalie schools at UND and we would go to the hockey camps. And then when my older brother was getting to be pretty good in the summer times, they would want him to come out and play goalie. So they had a goalie to shoot on. Well, by them inviting him, it was kind of like I got to take along a little bit and got to skate with. And I remember skating with guys like Mike Commodore and uh, Landon Wilson and uh, the Almer brothers and the Hoogstein brothers and all these guys that were greats for the UND back in the late nineties. And I was like, getting to skate with these guys. And it was unbelievable. Yeah. And it was so, and it just kind of, you saw what it took. If you wanted to be that good, like what, what it was going to take to, to be at that level. I don't know if it was before that time, but uh, I had the pleasure of being coached by Tony Herkus or Herkus the circus is what he was known for. Oh. <laughs> um, and it was crazy because he hadn't played in so long. I swear he played with a flat blade, but that guy could put the puck wherever he wanted. He would absolutely embarrass me in practice, but what, what a great hockey mind to be around. Oh, unbelievable. And, and his, the guy who kind of, I would say gets forgotten about, but the, the, uh, one of the three legs of that tripod they had, it was him. It was her, Tony Herkus, Steve Johnson, and and Bob Joyce, and those guys were like, you could argue one of the best lines in the history of college hockey. And my old man plays men's league still with Steve Johnson uh, back in Grand Forks, and you watch that guy skate around the ice. He barely seems like he's moving, but he has the puck the whole time. He's playing with guys half his age, and he's the one who's got the puck making all the plays. It's unbelievable. And, and, and you, yeah, the the creativity and the ability that some of those older guys just had in in their game is it was yeah it, it really does a lot for a young player to see what those guys the way they think the game and all that stuff yeah something Garrett and I talk about a lot is surrounding yourself with people who are going to push you to meet your goals so you want to be in a room with smart people because they're going to help you get to that next level and it sounds like with your family and the UND connection you just had a bunch of really unbelievable opportunities and you made the most of it. Yeah. We, we, we were lucky. We, we had, we didn't have a lot growing up, but my parents made sure we had opportunities to participate in the things that we enjoyed doing. And that was probably the best get, gift that you can give your kids. Like I have two children of my own and one on the way and making sure that they have the things and get to do the things they enjoy is what matters. And, and, you know, you're given a platform like here, here's your opportunity to play in your activity, your sport, whatever it is. And whether it's baseball, football, excuse me. Uh, I know my sisters were big in gymnastics. I, I like, I liked football more than I liked hockey growing up because it's like just getting to hit people and stuff. 
don't know if I had anger issues or whatever it was. I just like, <laughs> like hitting guys, but I, like, I, I just knew like my makeup, I wasn't going to, I was six feet, 160 pounds in high school. I wasn't playing football, you know, I was, but I, I loved, I loved playing hockey as well. And our parents just did a good job of helping us realize, okay, like, hey, it's like, not wanting it for us, but like, Hey, you have like, look what these guys do. If that's what you want to do, this is what it's going to take. And just kind of like constantly reinforcing what that, what that's going to take to get to that level. Like it's not just handed to you. You have to make it happen and you got to want it and you got to work for it. Yeah. I think that's a pretty like underestimated thing about parenting is the leadership aspect of it. Like obviously you need to provide safety for them, food, shelter, all that. But being a good leader to your kids is so important for setting them up for their future. Yeah. That, and that's, I, I've never heard anyone say it that way, but that, that is uh, an astute observation for, for a guy who doesn't have kids. You um, led me to it. Yeah. But it's, it's uh, right. Like, cause, cause providing shelter and taking care of them and making sure they have their essential needs is, is kind of easy. Like you're not, you're not going to neglect those things for your kids, but, when it comes time to, Hey, like we need to talk about your attitude or your lack of effort in, in this activity, or you're not trying on your schoolwork. That's hard. Like you have to kind of figure out a way to make your kids want to work hard because they want to, not because you're going to threaten them with punishment if they don't. Right. And it's a very fine line. It's, it's difficult. Like we got a young, I got a young eight year old stepson now and we, we, we work on that with him and, and like, and he's a great kid. He's super nice and, and got a kind heart and, and, you know, but like young kids, like you just, if you don't teach them what it's like to work hard, I don't know that it's, it's not just something that you just figure out. Like you got to teach that. You talk about your parents instilling hard work in, uh, in you at such a young age and you talk about how they told you to carry that, with you throughout your career well your college hockey career ended you um at its climax at the air force academy but not before you had uh, gone through northern michigan first can you tell us about the process and what happened there yeah so i i was playing juniors i i left home uh beginning of my junior year of high school went to bismarck and played in the north american league there and struggled my first year second year did a little better third year uh had a good year and I got a lot of interest from schools and I actually committed to air force. Um, and in the middle of playoffs that year, I found out that the air force was not going to let me into the, into the academy. And it was due to some, uh, struggles I had had with depression as a teenager. So maybe two, two years prior to that point in time, um, maybe two, two, three years prior to that point in time that, that, those events happened in my life. And that was the reason I was not going to be medically cleared to get into the Academy. And so that was, uh, that was tough. And I, I it was a tough blow because I decided between air force and army, I was going to pick one of the two. And I remember after I didn't get in Brian Riley, actually, we were talking about Brian before the, we came on here and what an awesome guy he is. He, uh, he called and asked, he's like, you know, we have a little different process here at army to get you in. And, and I think we could get do it. And I, and I, I don't know, I was just like, I felt so burned by it. And I just was, you know, I'm going to go in a different direction. And, and Frank, uh, 
you know, Frank treats me like he's one of, I'm one of his own. And he, he called up, you know, made some phone calls like, Hey, and helped me find a place. Cause it was so late in the year for me to have an opportunity to go anywhere. Um, and he found me, he uh, was able to help me find a home in Northern Michigan. And, and, and that's how I ended up there. And I, I loved it. I loved every second I spent in Northern Michigan. I still have good relationships with some of those teammates and, and love it there. It's an awesome place. Uh, it just was not uh, the place I really, truly wanted to be, though. So you knew you wanted to be part of one of these military academies, and unfortunately you had to spend that first year in Northern Michigan. And even though it was a good opportunity, how did you end up making it back to Air Force and getting in that? Yeah, it was it, – I didn't go to Northern Michigan thinking I would end up at Air Force. I was, like, on that other path. And and what what kind of changed my mind was I remember – uh, we were playing at Lake State, and I happened to be like I, I put I'm a forward, so I happened to be like the first guy back retrieving a puck in the neutral zone somehow. And I turned just inside our blue, like maybe about top of the circles. I turned to go high off the glass because I'm like, "What the fuck am I doing with the puck right here?" And I'm like, <laughs> like I don't know what to do. Like I'm supposed to be posting up on the wall, like chipping it in the zone, and. I go high off the glass and this guy, Nate per Perkovich, who's probably 10 feet tall, jumps up and like catches the puck and he drops it down. He goes through two of my teammates and scores and we lose the game two to one. And I just remember the coach saying, hey, why don't you come have a seat right here? And it was right between the forward and the D. <laughs> and I didn't see a shift the rest of the game and I didn't dress the rest of the year. And and I didn't go on my first – the next weekend, I didn't go on my first road trip at either. Like, I, I stayed back, and I was just, like, really, like, upset about that because I, I worked my ass off, you know. And I, I worked my ass off, and I didn't play very much. And it's not the fault of the coach, or I'm not mad at the coach because I love Walt Kyle and very much in, in, indebted to him and have nothing but respect for Walt. But it, it just – I – it just I, – I didn't like it. And, and as the rest of the year went, I remember the national tournament came around and Air Force had beat Minnesota that year in the first round. I was like, you know what, motherfucker, I should have been on that team. I was supposed to be on that team. And I called, uh, and I pardon my language. Am I, should I not be swearing on the podcast? No, absolutely. Okay. Good. We want All the right. truth. We want okay. the real jock. Well, that's, you're getting it. And, <laughs> and, uh, I, I just remember when the, when that ended, the, the regional ended, I called Frank and I, I, cause I still had his number. And I was like, Hey Frank, I still want to come to Air Force. And he's like, okay. He's like, did you talk to Walt? And I said, not, not, not yet. I, I want to, I will, but I wasn't going to call, talk to him if this wasn't something you would support. So we got on the same page because him and Walt are like great friends. So I didn't want anyone to feel like they were being uh, um, slighted. Kind of everyone got on the same page and, and, and the process to reapply to the academy took place. And, and honestly, it was by just the unbelievable stroke of luck and coincidence that that year, so this process kind of it was right after the first regional so there's two weeks for the final four and and so we kind of got the process moving and I think the biggest thing was they didn't want to waste time 
pursuing it if there wasn't going to be a realistic chance I was going to get in. And honestly, the only way I was going to get in is if somebody was willing to stick their neck out for me. And Eric Ean was up for the Hobie Baker that year. Uh, he was in the final three. So he was in St. Louis for the final four. And my older brother was playing in the final four. So my parents were there. Well, Joe Doyle, Mike Corbett, Andy Berg, Frank, all kind of, and the rest of the big wigs at the academy scheduled a meeting with my parents over dinner. And they all kind of sat down. And my, I know my mom's like, you know what? Like he's got a 4.0 at Northern Michigan University being a division one athlete. If you don't think that he's got his stuff scored away, then I don't know what you're looking for. And the three-star general was willing to sign a waiver for me to get in. And that's kind of what kind of kicked the process off of like, yeah, we're going to have you reapply and you're going to get in this time. And like he like signed away. So it was just, if that meeting had not, not taken place, yeah, I don't think it ever would have worked out. If your brother's not playing on North Dakota to get to the final four, if Air Force doesn't have their guys there at the final four, like, yeah, it does. It just doesn't happen. And and Frank, I, I didn't know this at the time, but Frank has since told me this, but he said, yeah, when you wanted to reapply, he, he remembers thinking in the back of the head, there's no fucking way this guy's getting into school again. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, well, nothing had changed from the first time, you know? Right. Except, well, nothing that they knew of, but right. other than like, hey, I was a division one athlete and had as good a grades as I could get. And, and I think that was enough for the academy to say, okay, well, this guy – his got he got he has his stuff squared away and and the funny thing is about it is a lot of my story growing up became public and I'm sure and we'll get into this I think a little bit later in the podcast but it became public so it wasn't anything I couldn't hide from that and I was very honest about it when I was applying to the academy like hey these are some things that have gone on like I made a point to bring it up because I didn't want to hide from it and then have them find out later and say, Hey, why, why didn't you tell us about this? Like I was just upfront, like here it is. And, and I was like pen, penalized for it at first. Like, Hey, like you're sorry, we can't accept you in the Academy because you've had some struggles in your life. I'm like, I don't get it. Right. I've worked through them. So isn't that better? Like shows a little resilience, perseverance, all that kind of stuff. I guess that should be a good thing. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just, I think a lot of things fell into place for that to line up and work out. And very grateful for the people who who really kind of stuck their neck out for me. I know General Regney was the one who signed my waiver and thank, thank my lucky stars that that happened. Yeah. Well, you mentioned resiliency and this is something that Garrett knows about as well, having transferred. Uh, when you do transfer from a school, you have to sit out a year. And when you were at Air Force sitting out a year, what was it like to have to come to the rink and the gym and work your hardest every single day, knowing that you weren't able to have that reward of play? It was, I, I, it wasn't that, I didn't kind of look at it like that, I guess. I, when I was going to transfer, the way I saw it was, the way my career went at Northern is like, okay, well, my hockey career is going to be over in four years. I'm not going to go play pro hockey like I always wanted. Like, I was a fourth line guy. I had two points. I played 16 games. Like I just didn't, I didn't play. I was like, how am I going to play pro hockey if I'm never playing here? So I saw it as like, Hey, well, at least I get to extend my hockey career by an extra year because I'm going to go to the Academy. I have to be there for four years. So 
I get an extra year out of it. It was kind of nice because the transition to the academy is difficult for a lot of people. So I didn't have to worry about the mental aspect of competing other than just showing up to practice every day and working hard. So like it was, it kind of allowed me to focus on, I shouldn't say focus on other things, but I, I think I, it just, it was one less major thing on my plate was the actual competition part of it. So I didn't have to um, think about that and prepare for that. And, um, you know, on a Thursday night, if I had homework, I could spend a little more time doing homework as opposed to going to bed a little earlier. Cause I know I had a game the next day. Like I didn't have to worry about that stuff and I wasn't traveling with the team. So I wasn't missing class like they were. And so I, I was able to kind of stay focused and get, get a good start on school. Cause the academics at the Academy are difficult and, and all that. And so I thought it was, it was actually really good. And it, and it allowed me to really work on parts of my game that I struggled with. And I got to spend a lot of time uh, just working on those specific things. And I didn't have to worry about overworking myself because I wasn't playing on Friday or Saturday. I could, I could spend an extra half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour on the ice on a Thursday night practice, just working on my game. And then when the team was gone, I could go down the rink for two, three hours and just work on my game. And there's plenty of fun drills you can do by yourself. It gets boring after a while, but there's still fun things you can do by yourself to just enjoy the, the that part of, you know, working hard and, and trying to just get better for the sake of wanting to get better. Yeah, I, I was in the same boat and I think it was nice to be able to dip my feet in and get used to just being a student again. Not that you aren't when you play division one, but you're trying to juggle so many different things, your social life, uh, you know, your friends, your teammates, schoolwork, just everything. Um, and the biggest thing for me is I wanted to use that year to get as as strong as I possibly could. So I would have different workouts similar to you. I would do extra stuff all the time. Um, and then when it was a real mental battle for me is when I found out after doing all these extra workouts, all these extra skates that I had to have bilateral hip surgery. And for me, it was kind of like, what was all that for? Um, and for the longest time, I really struggled with that. Like, what did I just work six months tirelessly at, to, you know, have almost taken away from me and I'll be set back so many steps after having these surgeries. Um, but I think it kind of boils down to a little bit of perspective. And I think the best perspective that you had is that you got to continue to play college hockey and me and Sean love touching on it all the time, but you're also getting, you know, your academics taken care of, which as many people can attest to in today's day and age is very important. Yeah. Like I, I, I what appealed to the service academies for me was like, I would get to play hockey. That was the allure, but the quality education and that I wasn't going to have to pay for it. And then I was getting to serve in the military was a big thing for me. Like I, that, that mattered to me and, and, and I enjoy it. And I've, I've, I've been in for almost 10 years now and I've loved every second of it. And, and you just, you continue to, uh, uh, while you're, you know, during that year, you're just kind of like, Hey, like I have an opportunity here to like work on things that I wouldn't otherwise get to work on. Like I can come out of this after this red shirt season and be a lot better than what I was coming into it and, and get to work on things that other people don't get to spend the time working on. So it was, I, I felt like I was getting a, 
um, given something that other people didn't, don't, other freshmen don't get the, really the luxury to have, especially at the academy. It sounds like both of you guys were able to step back and look at the big picture. Garrett, you knew that you needed a year to get stronger, right? And you decided you needed a year to take advantage of the academics and the extra ice time and all that. And that's, you know, that's something that a lot of young people don't have. So it's pretty impressive that you're both able to do that. I do have a question though. You had to spend four years at the academy. Did you basically have to throw away all of the credits that you earned from Northern Michigan? Uh, pretty much. Yeah. I, I think maybe one might've had two classes transfer. So I didn't really get credit for any of it. And that was, it is what it is. Like it was, I tried to get as much credit as I could, but it, it some of the stuff didn't transfer and that's really out of my control. So I, I didn't, I didn't like one that kind of didn't make sense to me was the philosophy class. They wouldn't transfer the credit. And then they're like, Oh, well we talk more about military stuff here. And actually we talked more about military stuff in Northern Michigan than we did here, which is <laughs> ironic, but yeah. Um, I'm sure the class has changed quite a bit since, since when I've taken it, but yeah, it's, but it, it, it is what it is. Like you, you, I think one thing that my dad did a good job having played uh, very much stressed the, the, the point of like, you, you can only worry about the things that you can control, which is your attitude and your work ethic. And like, I can't control if they're going to let me have credit. I can't control that the NCAA is not going to allow me to play when I transfer. Like those are all things that were out of my control, but you know what I can do is like, show up to the rink every day with a good attitude and I can work hard. That's easy. And there's no reason that those two things can't take place. Yeah. My dad says the same thing, control what you can, your attitude and your effort. And it seems like during your redshirt year, you clearly controlled your attitude and your effort on and off the ice. And after coming from Northern Michigan, where you only scored two points to now two years later, scoring 53 points in 41 games, and you didn't slow down the, the two years after that, do you think that it was the confidence boost of putting in the extra work all the time? Or do you think that you just developed that much more skill by putting in the extra work? Um, I think it was, I was, I was really nervous going into that year because I knew I was going to get an opportunity to play right away. And, and at I, Northern Michigan or Air Force? At Air Force. Um, at Northern Michigan, I, I was kind of slotted how I was slotted. I was a fourth line guy in and out of the lineup and, just wasn't – I don't think I was going to get the kind of opportunity that Frank and the staff at Air Force gave me. And, and I knew when I got there, I was going to get a chance to uh, – I was going to get a chance to keep that opportunity and that in those spots on the power play and on a top line, or I was going to play myself out of it. So I was really, really nervous. like. Um, you know, cause not everybody gets that. Like I was, I wasn't a freshman, but I was new to the team. Right. And I hadn't played any games. So it, in the eyes of all those guys, like I wasn't a, uh, what had I done to deserve that kind of opportunity? Right. So I was really nervous. Like I wanted to earn it. I, didn't, I just didn't want to give it to me. And, um, but I was confident in my ability. Like I knew I, I knew I could, could score because I scored in juniors and I, I learned a lot from my old junior coach, Mike Peluso. I mean, I, I credit so much to the way I play and thought the game to him. He taught me so much about the game in my last year junior that 
had I not played for him, I don't know that I'd have the same career that I was able to. Like he just taught me to think the game a different way. Cause I wasn't a guy with great foot speed and I, I wasn't a burner, but if I could think my way around the ice, I could put myself in good spots where I didn't have to be a burner. I could just be in the right space, right space at the right time, as opposed to like having to skate there. Um, and so I, I learned a lot about that and I was able to kind of like work on that for a year in between those seasons. And then air force, season starts and and actually the first ever game I got knocked out cold we were playing against Alberta we were up late in the game two to one and I came down on the D uh on the right side came down on the D like did a little little backhand forehand like and then try to shoot it through the D and this guy came from my blind side elbowed me right in the chin knocked me out cold and the only thing I remember was skating off the ice and like getting ready to fall down and I just grabbed the back of my Nylander, Brett Nylander, number 29. I just remember grabbing his back of the top of his jersey because I was falling down and then woke up in my stall. And uh, yeah, in today's world, like I had a, there's no way I would have played for at least a month after suffering something like that. Like I was motionless. It was bad. But I played the next weekend. Like I practiced the next day because that's the way that's the era I grew up in like you don't sit out like if you're going to sit out someone's going to take your spot and there's no freaking way I was giving up my opportunity and and I go to we go to Sacred Heart play in that old crap rink that they have <laughs> do you guys ever play there in the MILF no they have a new rink now they use the American the League MILF, rink. whatever the MILF yeah. Ice Pavilion, that place was a shithole <laughs> I mean I think there's some of the worst drinks I grew up playing with in like the middle of North Dakota. And I was on par with those things. It was bad. <laughs> and we, we go there and we, we get a sweep and I had, uh, I don't know, four or five points, I think. But my, I remember my first goal was if you're looking at the net to the left of the net, right on the goal line. And I like being a lefty. So I was, had really had no angle to shoot. I remember just shooting it right off the goalie's back into the net, like pretty much lateral with the goal line. And I like, I remember as I was like getting ready to shoot at one of my teammates, like screaming for me to pass. And I was like, no, I got, I, and I just like shot it. I went, it went in and they're like, I can't believe you shot that and you scored. Cause they were like going to be mad at me. And I think that like getting that first one was like, okay, I can do this. I can play. I can play at this level. I can, and I can contribute at this level. I didn't think it would ever turn into like what it did, but I, I definitely felt like I had the ability. Like I, I, I can help this team. And it was just getting that first one and like, and just being, being ready for my opportunity. Yeah. And then taking advantage of it when it came. One of the only downfalls of joining any uh, military academy is the question of playing professional sports changes depending on the year so what was your hockey journey like after graduation yeah so I, I after my sophomore year I had a number of teams taking interest at at the pro level um, and I remember talking to my brother's agent and saying hey like I'd like to go to a camp I had no intention of leaving the academy because I especially after all the stuff I had gone through to get there and I didn't want to give up because of one year of success, I give up the many years of like security and job stability and all that stuff that the academy can provide. And 
and he made me promise. He's like, I'll, I'll inquire to teams about you and help you get to a camp, but you have to promise me you won't leave school. I was like, I was like, that's not an issue. Like I, I don't want to leave school. So, but with the way the Academy works and the timing of certain things, I wasn't actually able to make a camp work, but I always just wanted to see how I could fit at that level. Like, Hey, like, how do I stack up against some of these other, you know, professional athletes and, and just see where I fit. If anything, it would be a good learning experience. And unfortunately I wasn't able to get that opportunity, but um, for me, like I, I always kind of kept in the back of my mind, okay, I'm not going to pursue getting out of my service. Cause I know that's not going to happen. I, I understand the business side of sports. I mean, my older brother was a undersized goalie, but he was an all American Hobie Baker finalist as a goalie in North Dakota. And like, he never even got a sniff at the top level. I mean, but he's still playing. He's 36 years old. He's had some of the best numbers of his entire career last year in Salzburg. And he's still playing, having a good season, good start to this season. Like, I don't know how many 1984 birth dates are still playing hockey and he's an undersized guy and he's still playing at the top of this game. So you just need an opportunity. And, um, but early in his career, he was not getting that. And so I knew like, okay, well, I'm going to be a 24, 25 year old free agent. Then nobody's, nobody's going to be banging down the door to sign me. Um, so I took the approach of, Hey, if I can at least get stationed in an area that, uh, has a team nearby, I can do my Air Force work and still play. And so that was the approach I took. Like, hey, I'm not going to ask for the uh, – this is a power and influence technique I actually teach in my classes um, <laughs> here at the academy is, you know, you ask for something big and you immediately uh, rescind that and ask for something a little bit less, and, and you'd be surprised how often you get people to be agreeable to that. And that's kind of what I asked for. I was like, hey, I, I don't want to ask – to be get out of my service. I just want to, uh, get an ability to be near a team that, uh, be at a base that has a team nearby. And so they helped me. And so I went to Alaska cause my brother had played there. And, and so I knew the ownership through him. And so I had, a uh, was able to get stationed there and then try to play with their team for about a year and a half. I was able to make that work. Uh, unfortunately with the lockout going on, I was just kind of, um, in 2012, the lockout kind of put an end to that because it just the the trickle down effect of everybody kind of moving down, and um, they didn't need me, a guy who couldn't be there full time. But for the year, year and a half, year and a quarter years that I was able to play, I loved every second of it. So, like, and I just kind of knew, like, hey, that's not gonna. Be, I'm not gonna make a career playing pro hockey, but I can at least try, and and make it work. And 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 I don't regret any like the decisions made to make that happen. Cause it was um, something I always wanted to do is be a pro hockey player. Like I always wanted to play in the NHL, but I'm still happy being able to say I played pro hockey and got that opportunity and, and did everything I could to make it work with the situation I had. Like I, I couldn't, I had zero control over them letting me out of my service. And to be honest, I wouldn't, I don't know that I would want that. Cause I just, I knew that there was other things I wanted to do in life and like hockey wasn't going to be it forever. I do miss it, but, um, you know, I, I got the opportunity and just made the most of what what options I had, uh, given being out of service Academy. When you talk about doing, you know, trying to play pro hockey, you did more than just try. Uh, there was a point where you weren't even able to practice with the team. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, that's funny. So okay, if I could, from a, if I, we just want to talk from a hockey perspective, if I could have gone back, I would have actually tried to go to a different location. Um, I chose Alaska because it made sense. My older brother would, had just played there. And so the ownership they knew and they were interested in having me come. And the coach was interested in having me come play. But over that summer, he took a new job and they got a new coach. And the new coach didn't know who I was. And so I think he honored having me around for, you know, uh, for that season because he knew I like moved there to play. And for the first probably month and a half, they didn't have me on the roster. And so I was still being given the time off from work to go. So I'd go to work at six in the morning and then I had from nine to noon off to go practice. And then I'd come back to work from like noon to six or later, depending on how much work I had to do. Um, and I did that every single day. And so because I wasn't on the roster, I couldn't practice. And so what I would do is I, there was an outdoor rink right next to the rink. And I would like went there with, uh, like half gear and I'd put my gear on in the back of my truck and I'd skate just like on my own on the outdoor rink for like a month and a half just like in the event that they might call me and say hey we need you and then like sometime in November they're like hey we had some guys get called up we need you can you play and I was like yeah I can play and I ended up scoring a goal in my first game you know but it's just like getting an opportunity and being ready to play and 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 uh yeah i mean it was i forgot that i was doing that it was <laughs> you're ready for the opportunity you're preparing for it the entire time yeah but it was uh it was it, yeah it's kind of funny how it worked out like they I, I i figured the call would come at some point once injuries started to happen and and guys were getting called up and and i just wanted to be ready i didn't want to get the call and like because they could have easily called somebody else from around town to just fill in for a spot for a game. But I didn't want, I wanted to, I wanted to be the only guy that they wanted around. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to be ready. So I was skating on the outdoor rink, like just like in the old days, I guess. Yeah. I mean, if you weren't going to skate an outdoor rink in Alaska by yourself, you may have never gotten the opportunity to play professional hockey. I, I uh, well, I, I definitely wouldn't have had the showing that I did in my first, first game that's for sure yeah. um or i think maybe i scored my first game or second me yeah, it was the first week and i play I, I i was able to get on the score sheet there and, and contribute that way and it was um uh just i'm just happy that i was able to make um make the most of the opportunity because it i think showed them like hey this guy's he wants it unfortunately that year with the way they they traveled up there, they they did all the road trips and big blocks. Well, I didn't have enough leave from the Air Force to be able to go do that, and so they I couldn't go on the road for three weeks at a time. So I think after that they're like, "Hey, can you come on the road with us?" And I was like, "I can't." And then I think they the coach kind of saw that as me not being bought in. I'm like, I I I, I like legally can't leave. Like I can't leave for that long. It was just. It wasn't able to be worked, and I think they just kind of found a different option because then they were gone for three weeks. And I was still trying to stay in shape just in case and ended up just not getting utilized towards the end of that season, which, you know, it is what it is. That's, that's life. So. so you alluded to it a bit earlier, and uh, it was something that 
prevented you from getting into the academy the first time. Um, when you were a young adult, you suffered from a little bit of depression. Could you, could you tell us about this and yeah. how it impacted your life? So as a teenager, yeah, I just, I, I went through, I think some of the same growing pains that I think a lot of teenagers go through. They go through, uh, you know, the ups and downs of just growing up and like in maturing and your brain developing and things. And I just didn't, I don't know that I figured out how to like navigate some of that. And then, and it kind of stemmed from having, I had a long, uh, a relationship at the time with a, a nice girl and, and we just, we ended up splitting up and I, I just, I don't know, for some reason I couldn't handle like that. I don't know why. And, and it kind of threw me into a tailspin and I still haven't, I don't know that I've ever really zeroed in on what kind of, what were the things that kind of led to that one incident being the straw that broke the camel's back? Like, that was that was the incident that kind of like pushed me over the edge, but I I still haven't like really nailed down what it was that led up to that point. Um, I don't know. Like I, I am a little bit of a perfectionist, and I certainly was back then. Um, and I know my older brother was playing juniors, and that's what I wanted to do, but I wasn't getting some of the, I guess maybe interest, maybe I thought I should or wanted, and that was difficult. So like trying to manage all that and I think I don't know having too many expectations on like what a relationship should bring to your life um and and then when the relationship ended I just kind of like got lost and wasn't really able to in a mature way kind of like figure out how to navigate and in a healthy way and so things got pretty bad for me for for a while of you know, I had to be hospitalized for about a week, uh, just to kind of like, so they could manage the medicines that they thought I should be on. And, um, and some of the other things and just, uh, I mean, it got to a point where I was like sleeping with my dad's shotgun in the basement. We had an unfinished basement. And I remember I was down there and I was having, I was, it was, my parents knew I was having a hard time. And my younger brother would like sleep on a mattress next to my bed because my mom wanted him to. And yet he had no idea that, that I was doing that for like, I don't know how long, a week, couple weeks. And then finally one night I was just like, you know what, mom, like I, I, I need, I, I need to go see somebody like this is what's been going on. And I told her that and she just like turned white, like I could go. like, she had no idea. Like obviously nobody knew that I was doing that. And I didn't want to commit suicide. And like, obviously if I did, I wouldn't be here, but I felt that way. I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to like, how do I, cause I, I remember bringing home and I, I apologize. It's a little disjointed, but like, cause these memories come back to me. Um, I remember bringing home these pamphlets of like depression and things like that. And like reading through them, like, wow, that was a lot of those things apply to me. And I remember saying something to my parents about it and they're just like, Oh no, you're, you're, you're okay. And it's, I think it's just so hard for people in general, but parents are like, I don't know that they always know how to react to it. Right. Like they, it's like, what do you do? Like it's, it's hard. And, and I think, 
that was like my, my weird roundabout way of well, not so roundabout, but like very <laughs> same way of asking for like, Hey, I need help. And here's why, because I'm going to sleep with dad's gun for a week. And that's like, you can't really forget what that image brings to your mind. And, and then based on how I was feeling and, and the thing, like, you know, the suicide thoughts and that kind of stuff, like really the doctors like put me on some medicines and, um, you know, it was very much overkill on the medicines that they, they prescribed to me. And, and it really, like turned me into a big, like a major zombie. Like I was just put on a little bit of weight, um, just to not feel like myself. I hated it. And like, and then I went on to play juniors. And the, and the thing is like, the coach who took me in, Chad Johnson, like one of the best people you'll ever meet. Any, any, any of the folks listening, if you've been around hockey enough, you probably know who that is. And that guy is like one of a kind, unbelievable guy. And, and I say that because he ended up committing suicide himself uh, some years after that. And yeah, it was just, it was crazy because it, it, if had he not brought me in, like he knew I wasn't in the right state of mind to play at that level. But he brought me in anyway because he knew I needed to get out, of, get out of Grand Forks. And he had taught me in the, or coached me in the summer times uh, growing up. So, you know, I had a pre previous relationship with him. And so, and my dad warned him, was like, Hey, he's got these things going on, but he still brought me in and he kept me around the whole year. And, uh, yeah. And I'll, and I'll talk about more about that situation and how that affected me in a bit, because it's going to go through the progression of it. But during that year, I was just like, I was on these meds for so long. I was, overweight because of some of the side effects of the medicine so i was just not able to play at the level i wanted to like and thankfully for me hockey was kind of a sanctuary away from that stuff like whenever i'd go to the rink that was like i never thought about the other things going on in my life which was very nice for me like i had at least had that outlet it was like one of the positive things i had and so that year if like my, my trainer finally was like, what are you taking and how much are you taking? And, and I told her, and she's like, she was dumbfounded. She's like, they couldn't figure that out. Like that was like way too much. There was like four different medicines and the amount that they were prescribing, it was crazy. And then finally one day I was like, you know what? Fuck this. And I like threw it all away. And like, it was like in November. I was like, I'm not taking any of this anymore. And I kept some because my brother and I were playing together at the time. And my mom was always like hounding him about making sure that I was taking my meds and stuff. So I would always like, I just kept a little bit to like let him know, yeah, I'm taking my medicine. And then when I kind of like got to a point where he didn't really bug me about it, I finally like for like, I don't know, it was like two or three weeks after I hadn't taken any at all. I was like, I'm not, I haven't been taking my medicine. And then my mom freaked out and everybody freaked out. And I was like, well, I haven't been taking it for three weeks. So like, there's no point in going back, right? Like I'm fine. And I wouldn't prescribe that to people who are on medicine. But for me, like, I just didn't want to, I didn't want to, I wanted to just deal with it and not have to like deal with it with a medicine. Like I just, I don't know. And like the rest of that year finished how it finished. 
but I was able to kind of get back to a normal weight for me and then came back the next year and I was like, felt like a totally different person. And, you know, during that whole time I was going to therapy and talking to somebody and it was, you know, being a little bit more honest about what I was thinking and feeling and like kind of working through it. And to me, I was like, this is a mental problem that I have to deal with mentally. Like taking a medicine isn't going to like change how I approach things. If I, you know, like I, I think I just thought that medicine was going to fix it and I just waited for it to fix it. And I, it didn't like, if I didn't change the way I thought about things or approach things or the perspective I wanted to, or chose to take on, on different situations, then I wasn't going to get any better. And I think what finally kind of kicked in, we were talking about this when we were driving back from Denver that uh, last week was I remember in junior English, I remember uh, the junior English or maybe it was my senior year. I forget. It might've been my senior year. Um, I, uh, we had a, a writing assignment that said, Hey, it, choose a time in your life where you, had to, you either go North or go South. And I'm like thinking like, well, I got to go North or go South six feet right under the ground. Like that's a pretty big decision, I guess, to go North or South. And, um, uh, so I, uh, uh, I wrote about the time where I, we went home during my, Sorry, I'm like the, the, remembering the chronological events like that took place is 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 kind of hard as I talk through this. Um, so it was Thanksgiving. I went home like my first year juniors Thanksgiving, and that was the time I wrote about in this paper. Was this that that time frame? Like I went home uh, with my brother, and I remember going back to my old high school. There was like a five-story parking ramp next to our old high school. And I was standing on the ledge of that parking ramp. It was like snowing and like flurries. You know, I was like six, maybe six feet wide. And I was like standing on it. And I like had a note written out in my car and, and stood there. I don't know. It seemed like forever. I don't know how long it was, but it seemed like it was forever. Um, and I just like was crying and, I don't know, just feeling obviously how, how you feel when you're in that, when you put yourself in that situation. And I just didn't do it. I don't know why. I, I, I feel like I know why, but I think maybe it's like the book answer of why I didn't, but I, I don't really know if I know why I didn't do it. I just didn't do it. Went home, had Thanksgiving dinner, went and played on the pond with all my siblings and then went back to Bismarck. And that's when I threw all my meds away. And I, and so flash, fast forward, uh, you know, six to 12 months and I'm writing this paper and that's the situation I was writing about was the decision not to jump off that ledge. And, and so I wrote, it was like six pages long and my teacher read it and she's like, you know, if you could really, if you were willing to share this, you could really help a lot of students out. And I was like, well, if I'm going to do that, then I need to like add some details. Cause I left a lot of stuff out and I turned into like a 15 page little essay I wrote about the, that situation. And, and then she pushed for it to get published in the local newspaper because suicide's a kind of a big deal or a big issue back in North Dakota. So she, uh, 
it was published in the Bismarck newspaper where I was playing juniors and it was published in uh, the Grand Forks Herald where I grew up. And it was just kind of like a, became a very public thing. But for me, it was like, I know my parents were, my dad especially was really hesitant about me doing that. About like airing out my dirty laundry kind of, so to speak. Um, and, and I didn't see it that way. I was like, you know what, this is going to help people. This is going to help folks, uh, not feel like they're alone and it's going to help me just like it was a form of therapy for me to like just get it out there like I didn't have to be the only me and my therapist weren't the only ones who knew how I felt or what I had experienced in my you know the last couple of years so it was very therapeutic for me to do that and that turned into a few different engagements where I was you know speaking to different kids and 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 audiences about it and I love, I, I, I kind of, I didn't say I love it. It was, it was always, it's always hard to do, but it was, I think a good thing for, for anyone who was listening. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of what happened as a teenager was going through all that stuff and, 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 you know, and, and there was opportunities lost because of it. Like there were some junior teams that knew I was going through that stuff who didn't want to bring me in. Chad Johnson was willing to take a risk on me and I, and I'm forever grateful for that, you know, and it's, he, I came to learn that he was very much dealing with a lot of those same issues. And uh, unfortunately he wasn't able to, you know, he made the decision he made and I think we're all at a loss because of it, because he was an unbelievable guy, but had he not done that, I don't know that I'd be here today to talk about it. Like he really, took a chance on me in a time where no one really wanted to. So talking about it definitely helped you and you knew you were able to help other people. You talked about how it helped you make, you realize that you weren't alone, right? Mm -hmm. And then were there other things that you did or you could recommend to help people get through a time like that? Um, I don't know if I, it, it's hard to really like say, Hey, this is what you got to do to get, get better it's the thing is is like it, it has to be from you though like you have to want to get better um somebody else can't want it for you the same the same thing like growing up like wanting to be good at sports like your parents can't want it more than you want it right like you got to find a way to internally motivate someone to want to put in the work because it was not like and we'll talk about you know, the next time in my life here shortly where I went through some very similar things, but as an adult, like you have to want to figure out like what, what it is that's going on and be willing to look at it. What, what it is. And, and, and granted, like the things that I, I struggle with, it was more relationships and that kind of stuff, but other people deal with things that, you know, they go through abuse, they go through other things as a child that, they carry with them their whole lives that they have no control over. Right. Like that's, that's, uh, people taking, taking away some of those freedoms from you because they, like whatever abuse you in whatever way, physical, sexual, mental abuse. And, uh, but you have to be, you know, you want to work through it and, and, and be willing to talk about it. And, and if you're someone who has gone through some things and you haven't, uh, 
and you have worked through them and you're comfortable talking about, be willing to talk about that stuff because you have no idea who else around you might be going through something like what you're going, what you've gone through where, and I, uh, I, I have a student and I, I won't say names or anything like that, but I, I've shared, I share my story in class when I'm teaching at the Academy because I one, it fits into the topics we talk about. We talk about resiliency and, and leadership and being a good leader and the empathy and things like that. And I say, if you want, if you want to, um, someone to, uh, share their most intimate feelings and thoughts with you, then you got to be willing to pull your pants down first kind of thing. You know, and it's, you got to be willing to reveal yourself. And if you're someone who has, uh, gotten to that point, where you're like, hey, I, I've worked through that and I, I'm in a better place. Like, be willing to share that because you have no idea the kind of strength that that can give to somebody else. And surely, when I've done it in class, like I've had students who want to come talk to me and I've learned about instances where people have kind of gone through some things with this one student in particular. They were sexually abused by their male neighbor. And this is a male who came to talk to me for like three years growing up. And you'd have never, I, if of all the students I've taught, a couple hundred now, he would have been the probably last person you ever thought that that happened to. Like he hit it so well, but you could tell after talking to him, like how damaging it was to him. And, but we don't know that nobody in that room, I guarantee had any idea that he had ever experienced anything like that. And so it's, you know, it is on the individual to want to have to get to want to get better. But if you're someone who can like be cognizant of the people you're around and, and what they're maybe going through, if they seem a little off, like find a way to facilitate that kind of conversation to get them to want to share it. Cause sometimes that's all people need is just the ability to talk about what they're going through. So they're not the only one who feels how they feel. And that, and that can be a huge relief. And honestly, it can be enough of a uh, burden relief or lift that they start taking the steps toward like, hey, you know, I want to make this a, a more of a permanent feeling. To me, you just brought up probably the single most important thing we could ever tell anybody on this podcast. And that's to treat everyone with the same amount of respect and dignity because you just said it. You have no idea what anybody's going through. Yeah. And I, I think that if... Yeah, I got what I got. I, I say this in class. I got one rule. Like my class is a big circle. We sit in a circle and we talk. And it's a really fun class for students. And it's hard to teach because you got to get students to want to engage. But I feel I feel like I've gotten to a good point where, you know, by sharing things like that, that 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 gets people engaged and want to and want to have conversation. And, and and I have one rule, and that's that you will treat everybody with respect. Everybody's allowed to have an opinion in here and nobody's going to kick you in the shin for having it. And if you don't show anybody respect, like I'll jump down your throat so fast. Like it'll, and it's, it's never been an issue. And, and people like share things that nobody else would have ever thought that they were maybe going through. And you have no idea. I bet you we've all been in an instance or had something happen where we had an impact on somebody and we didn't even know it. We just did, we had no idea. And, and so much of it is just a small act of kindness or just treating somebody with the kind of respect and dignity that, that we all deserve as humans. And that's, uh, I couldn't agree more. Like that is, 
I think our the with the how polarized our world is, like especially our country right now, I, that we could all use a little dose of humility to treat each other with a little bit more respect, even if we have differing opinions. And I think one of the things you just brought up is that if you want to really help someone and have them really open up to you, you're going to have to open up as well. Yeah. It can't be a one way road. No, you can't in, in leaders like you can't, especially in the military where you're in charge of people. Uh, like you can't say, Oh, like, you know, I have open door policy, but then like, you're not out there like talking to folks like, sorry, when you're the boss, like you're not just like, people are just going to walk into your office cause you see you got an open door policy. Like you got to show it, you got to mean it. You got to go out and talk to people and talk about the things that they care about. And it takes time to, to build that kind of rapport. Like it's not just going to happen. Right. And, and, and it's not like I first day of classic, all right, here's all the shit I've gone through in my life. You ready? Like, here it comes. Like come on, not coming at you. I'm just going to vomit my whole life in front of you. No, like it's very, I'm very selective about where it, where I fit it in there, but but I find a way to fit it in and I'm intentional about doing so, so that, uh, you know, it just, it, it takes time and it takes the, the, the top person at an organization isn't going to talk to the lowest person about it, but the way that they interact with the people who you interact with every single day, like I always talk about this, like your sphere of influence. If you can be the best person you can be, whether it's one, two, a hundred, ten hundred, you know, a hundred, thousand people that you like if you can be the best person you can be within your sphere of influence like and focus most of your energy there like this world would be a so much better place and we would all benefit from everybody being that way and and it starts with like just the respect and empathy like hey we don't know all the intimate details about the people we're around hopefully in the time that you're working with that person or you're friends with that person you do kind of learn about that stuff. I mean, I got a student in class and I got to think about how to say this without like making it obvious who it is, if they haven't ever listened or they do listen. Um, like he shared something with me that one of the guys I coach right now is his roommate. Does he doesn't even know. I'm like, you guys are roommates. You don't even know. He's like, no, I'm like, maybe you should ask him about some of the, like, I didn't say what it was, but I was like, you should talk to him. Like, like those are like, it's unbelievable. Like they live together and they don't ever have that kind of depth of a conversation, you know? And it's a, it's hard to like, I don't know. Like, like you gotta be, you got, we can't be scared of that conversation as pe as people. Like we have to be willing to, go to those spaces, those places in our lives that, that are, are the scariest for us. And Brene Brown is like, I think the the best person who talks about this is like being vulnerable, like showing vulnerability is not a bad thing. And, and to me, actually it shows strength. Well, it's just a part of life that everyone goes through. And Garrett, we were talking to Holden a few episodes back and he talked about how life is like the cookies and cream you want to show everybody the best parts of your life. And that's not, that's not what life is. And that's not where you need support. Like you don't need people to brag about your accomplishments. You need people when you're down. Yeah. You need people when you're going through these hard times. Like when I was, 
when I was going through that stuff as a teenager, I, I still got a lot. I, I know a lot of people from my hometown, but when I go back, I talk to my family and there's one other person I talk to and that's more my buddy Morgan. And, and that's it. Like he's the, cause like when I was going through that time, like I think some of my friends just kind of shied away from it and, and he was willing to stand by me and I've never forgotten that. Like he, like when I needed someone the most, like outside of my family, like he was the one friend that I, that was there for me. And, and I appreciate that. Cause like he was willing to, to be there and be vulnerable and not be scared of what I was going through because maybe he couldn't handle it. Like, you know what? Like whatever your belief system is like, uh, you know, maybe that's being presented to you because God knows that you can handle it and help somebody else. I think being vulnerable is to be authentic. If you're not, if you're never vulnerable, you're not your authentic self because, you know, we're created through the experiences that we go through in a sense that everything that someone has gone through helps shapes their opinion of how they think about different topics or this or that type of thing. And to me, that's an authentic original person. And to dig down to that vulnerability, like you said, is very hard, especially for some people that have gone through some shit in their life. But when you're able to open up and become one with yourself and learn about others as individuals, that's authentic in my opinion. Yeah. Like when, when I was going through therapy after I had gotten, gone through my d- divorce, uh, maybe I'll just create a segue to get into that. Yeah, Cause you, it's, you should tell the story too. Yeah. And, and, and so uh, I, I, my therapist recommended a book is called, um, will the real me please stand up? And sorry, I was thinking of like a slim shady song there. <laughs> Very similar. Yeah. <laughs> and anytime I recommend that book, that's what everyone thinks. I'm like, no, no, no. It's actually a really good book. It's all about communication. And there's a quote in there and I, I, I hope I'm getting this right. But it's, um, and the author's name is blanking on me, the book. I have the book. I think it's in my office, but I, I can't, I'm going to butcher it and it's going to be, it's going to be bad. It's like, here's the author's John Powell, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Have you read the book? I just looked it up, but I'm going to read it now after you recommended it. Okay. Yeah. It's awesome. It's super easy to read. It's not long. It's, it's good. Just, but it's, the quote is, uh, whereas some about like, uh, like our wholeness is dependent on um, how open and honest we are with others and ourselves. That That's not the quote, but that's kind of the gist of like what you would take away from it. If you read it is the, the integrity of yourself, the, the wholeness that you feel is very much based on your ability to be open and honest with others and yourself. And if you're not willing to share the most intimate details of yourself and constantly hide it from people, like, are you truly being authentic in who you are? And I, I've, 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 I wish I, I should remember the quote cause it does mean a lot to me, but yeah. But anyway, yeah, it's, it's, it's good. And I very much to the point that you just made of like vulnerability is not about like weakness it's to me it's strength that anyone who's willing to go to those places 
is to me is a strong person, not a weak one. I think that right there is a tremendous quote. Um, getting into that story that we've alluded to now. Yeah. On that. So, you know, and I, I went through this stuff as a teenager, was able to work through that. But we got to remember as young adults, like we don't stop developing until, you know, our, our mid twenties, like our brain, at least I think this is correct. Like scientifically is not done developing until about that time. So we're still very much growing a lot. Well, I, I met a nice, uh, nice girl from my hometown and, and, and I, I, I try to tread lightly in telling this story because it's, it's going to sound a certain way. Um, and I don't want to paint this person in a, in a tough light, uh, because they, they're not a bad person. It's just things happened in life and due to the circumstances around it, like people will develop a certain opinion. So I'm just trying to try to be careful in telling the story. Um, but when we met while I was at the Academy, she's from my hometown and we ended up getting married and we moved to Alaska. Well, I was, uh, very much focused on a lot of the things that I had going on in my life and career, uh, you know, my air force career, my hockey career. And I was trying to do online grad school and, things that required a lot of time and attention, right? That a lot of time and attention that I was not giving to a, you know, a, my new spouse at the time. And I, I was got notified in January of 2013 that I was getting deployed to Kuwait for six months. And while I was deploying, uh, or while I was deployed, you know, things just, didn't seem right. Like I, I was never much for social media. Um, didn't do Instagram, didn't really do Facebook and like all the other, the Twitter stuff. Like I don't have any of that stuff now, but at the time I didn't either. And, and I was about three and a half, four months into it. I was starting to get like, I'd call my parents like once a week. Um, and they weren't, uh, they said, like, they're like, hey, what's going on with the station? I was like, what do you mean? Uh, she's like, in Alaska, like, working? I don't know. Like, talk to her. Like, we would talk, like, once a week for sure. And then, like, other times throughout the week as a fit. But, like, we were on almost exact opposite time zone. So, like, we were 12 hours apart, which would make it really hard to communicate throughout the day because we were on, you know, it was the exact opposite. And uh, it was my grandma like started asking me about stuff and I was like, okay, well, my grandma's starting to notice like, what the hell is going on? So I like started looking at it. And I'm like, ultimately it kind of came down to like, I'm like, I say, she's like, what is going on? Um, um, but I, I asked her like, what, what's, what's going on? And she's like, Oh, nothing. Like, and I just, I knew it wasn't nothing. Right. Like, and I, I, and I looked on Instagram and these other things and kind of like was starting to piece together. I'm like, what, like, wh you're not being honest with me. Like, what's going on? Like, why, who are these people that you're hanging out with all of a sudden? Like, you know, and, and it, it really kind of got down to, I was, uh, when we would have our like weekly time to talk, she wasn't answering. And it was like, 11 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. So like, there's no reason she shouldn't be answering the phone. 
And, and so like, as that, once that kind of started happening, I started getting really suspicious about what was going on. And pretty much when I came home, like she was still living in her house, but she was not there anymore. Like, like she was, her attention was being given elsewhere. And, and I just remember coming home from deployment and I wanted, I kind of like, I don't know if it was like naivety or, uh, like thinking that, like wanting to like not believe what I th maybe thought was going on. But I, like, I, I guess I just didn't think that that would happen. Like that's like, like that, like the John Deere letter type thing is like what you see in the movies. And, and I wanted her to pick me up from the airport because like, I didn't want to, my hockey buddies, I had since been done playing hockey. So they, a lot of them weren't even around and I wasn't seeing them. And some of my work friends had since moved away. So like, I didn't really have any friends there. I just wanted her to pick me up. And the probably thing that was the worst feeling for me was landing in Anchorage after traveling halfway across the world and uh, calling her saying, Hey, I just landed. And she was like, Oh, I'm just leaving the house, which was like 45 minutes from the airport. So she was like half an hour late picking me up at like two o'clock in the morning. And I was just like, that was, I was like, okay, like this, in my mind, I knew that things were done. I just didn't want to believe it. And so it was just, it was, it was tough. Like I came home from deployment and my spouse was gone. Like not physically gone, but like she was not, she didn't want nothing to do with me. And that was hard. Like that was probably one of the lowest spots I'd ever gotten in my life was like, I just, I didn't know how to deal with that. And I remember going home. I didn't want to go home because I was embarrassed. Like every, it seemed like everybody knew what was going on except me. And I like, I was embarrassed that that's what was happening. Like I like, why am I, what the fuck? Like, what was I missing that I didn't have a clue. And like, I remember my brother was like helping out on the, on the UND coaching staff at the time. And, and his, colleagues were asking him about it because their wives were talking about it. I'm like, what the, f I, I had no idea. And, and that was hurtful. And it was, I was embarrassed to like go home and like face that. So I didn't want to go home. And, but I did any, I went home and, you know, we, we ended up having a meeting between me and my ex-wife and my parents and her parents. And I just remembered like we were sitting in our living room and, I wanted to work things out. I'm like, Hey, you know, we can work things out. And then fine. I just remember like, she, like, I remember her hand motions and everything. And she's just like, you know what? Like, I just, you don't get it. I don't want to be married to you anymore. And I was like, okay. So I just like, I was like, I, can I, I just want to go downstairs. I've had enough of this conversation and respectfully I like, dismissed myself from that conversation and it was like finally like it was like hit me like a cold bucket of water like oh okay well like we had been trying to do therapy but she just she really wasn't into it and there's a lot of other details that I could or like I could share to kind of paint the picture but I think that 
kind of paints it well enough. Like I don't, it's not necessary to share all that stuff, but it was, um, yeah, that was like, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I remember the next day I didn't wake up, get out of my bed till like three in the afternoon. And I remember my dad being like, he's like, no, you just got to like, you know, you got to get up and like life goes on. And I was like, dad, you don't fucking get it. You don't get it. I was like, I just got home from deployment. I'm still trying to get my life back on track from that. My wife just left me. I go, and I'm sad. You have no idea what it's like to feel what I'm feeling because you've been married to mom for 30 years and you guys are happily married. Like you have no idea what it's like to be in the situation I'm in. I'm sad and I just want to be sad. And I don't want you to tell me what I should think or feel. And I think that hit him like a ton of bricks. But it was like, like I was just, I was sad. Like it was like, I didn't, I didn't know what to think or feel. And, and I got, went back to Alaska and I was honestly in a space where like, I was like, I was like, you know what? Like, I'm not doing this again. I'm over it. And I actually like was ready to be done. And I was like, I think 27 years old at the time, maybe. And, and I ended up like meeting uh I so the one positive thing I did when I got back to Alaska after going home uh I was going back I had six months left in Alaska before I was getting going to be moved by the Air Force and so I uh um I I was just I was kind of done like that was that was a tough I was having a hard time dealing with uh hockey being over and that was kind of prematurely cut short for me because the lockout and everything. And I thought I was going to have a little bit more time to play. Um, and then an deployment and then that happened. And I was just like, geez, I just like lost two of the three things that are most important to me. And, uh, I had done, I had like, gotten I've been doing taxes like voluntarily on base for a while and so I applied for a job at a tax office um and I committed to like going to these interviews and I like had had a plan I was like you know what I'm just as soon as these are done I'm I'm done I'm I'm just gonna kind of excuse myself from this earth to put it nicely but I was like, but I committed to doing these interviews. So I'm going to do that first. Well, I go to this interview and like, and, and the person who eventually ended up becoming my boss was like such an awesome person. And like, so like, I don't know what it was, but she asked me a question and I kind of like, I couldn't help but like tear up a little bit. And she's like, well, you're an officer in the air force. What are you doing trying to find a job? What's going on? And I was like, I didn't know what to say. So I just said like, I, you know, got home from deployment and I got some things going on in my life and I have a lot more free time that I'm used to having. And I just need to fill it productively. And she was able to kind of read between the lines on that. And we ended up like talking for like 45 minutes about our different experiences and, and, and that was, I was like, you know what? I, I think I'm going to be all right. So I started working there and then ended up dating that person for, you know, the rest of my time in Alaska. And then when I left Alaska, I ended up moving, I moved to California for my, for my job. And, and I had, 
kind of was like left like trying to figure out like what the how to deal with the ending of my marriage and then also that relationship so I was kind of left trying to figure out both of those two things and the question I had was okay why am I constantly in relationships where they kind of like have this uh like explosive ending like what is this about me like the only common trend in all those relationships was me so what 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 is it about me that I'm not seeing or missing? And as soon as I got to California and got settled in, I immediately like sought out help. Like I went to the mental health clinic at the army base where we did our medical stuff there. And I said, Hey, I need to see somebody. And here's the things I want to talk to them about. And I don't want to see somebody on base. So I went and found somebody in the community and I went and talked to them for once a week for 18 months. And I would go to the, I'd go to my appointment in Carmel and then I would leave and I'd go down to the beach and I'd walk up and down the beach for a couple hours, spitting sunflower seeds, uh, sunflower seeds and just thinking about what we talked about that day. And it was just, that was, that was like one of the probably hardest things I ever had to do, even with the other things I had gone through was like to take an honest look at myself and like, okay this is, this is who you are. This is the things you've gone through and that you need to like, what is, what, what, what is it about me? Like, what am I missing about me that I, you know, find myself in unhealthy relationships? Like, how am I contributing to that? And it took me about five months, but it was like the biggest dose of humble pie I ever had to eat was like accepting my responsibility like my level of responsibility in the ending of like my relationship with my ex-wife like she didn't find or seek attention elsewhere because i'm a great guy like there was some re like it takes two people to make a relationship work or two people to make it not work you know and what was my part in that and i had to i had to come to terms with that like it was always like Oh, well, you know, she did this to me and that's why I feel like, no, I did. that wasn't what it was. And that's what the therapist pushed me towards was being open and honest with myself. And it got to a point where I, I called her after so many months and said, Hey, I just want to apologize for the part that I played and how our relationship was and ended and just left it at that. That was the last time I ever talked to her. Cause I like, and I was honest, like I was, I truly felt that way. Like I, I, I don't know what, like, I just, you know, obviously what I was doing was like pushing her to want to, uh, you know, find comfort other, other places. And like, that's on, that's on me. And it was, it was the most bitter piece of humble pie. Like I, it was, it took a long time to like come to terms with that. And it wasn't just that way. It was all of them. Like all the things that have happened in my life, like where am I not taking ownership of the things of like where I'm at? You know, like it's only, you know, you, you, again, you can only control your attitude and how hard you work at something. And like, you have to be accountable to who you are and what you do. And, and yeah, I mean, so, and that was a really tough thing for me to work through is to get to a point where 
I could be comfortable being me again. Pretty powerful story. And a lot of these things have been pretty personal and I really appreciate it. All the listeners will really appreciate that kind of insight from someone who went through it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, like, I, I, I don't know. I don't feel obligated, but like th- these things happen all the time. Like relationships happen. Like ever, everybody has relationships, right. And divorce is part of that kind of thing. And, and they go through it and everybody handles it differently. And, and we shouldn't be scared of like how those conversations go. You know, even there's been times where I've kind of shied away from certain conversations and later regretted like, you know what, that was an opportunity I could have maybe like open, like open the door a little bit more with somebody about maybe something they were going through and, and I didn't take it. And, you know, it's just hard. Like when we know people are going through things, we shouldn't like try to avoid the topic. Like you find just, you got to be, have some finesse, but you got to find a way to like, you know, bridge the gap a little bit of, you know, like open that door to having that conversation with folks because they probably want to. So, um, you know, for me, it's, I kind of, I use my stories as a way to, um, open the door for people who want to come talk, especially in my position as a, as an instructor, I don't have the ability to get to know everybody in that way, but if I can make them feel comfortable enough, maybe they'll want to at least come talk or, or maybe, uh, you know, they'll do that for somebody else. So, and that's kind of the, the approach I take with it. And it, and it differs, it differs when I'm in a different situation and, um, maybe can have a little bit more of an in-depth relationship with more folks um, than try to take advantage of that, but like try to like have that conversation. It's hard, but we would all benefit from it if more people were willing to do it. Cause that's, there's research out there that shows that people don't need to be on antidepressants. They don't need to see a therapist necessarily, but they do benefit from having someone to talk to, to share some of those more intimate feelings that they're having. Um, and, and who better to do that than with your friends, right. Or your family, like those should be the first people that you talk to that stuff to about. I think we could tell stories all night and we appreciate you being vulnerable and authentic as we said before. And I wish I was there with you guys to, you know, maybe touch on the things that I've gone through or Sean could touch on the things that he's gone through. So we could be vulnerable and continue to develop a relationship farther than just you telling your stories because as you mentioned before everyone goes through it yeah Uh, but it's been a very insightful and very powerful conversation i'm really looking forward to the people that get to hear it yeah absolutely i I appreciate you guys having me on and um, giving me an opportunity to kind of share it and and you know hopefully somebody out there like take some from that or like they're going through something they're they're willing to open up about what they're going through so that they're not the only ones feeling how they're feeling because it's it doesn't matter what it is, whether you're, you think your problem is small or not, like in the grand scheme, what affects us in the way it affects us is 
that's how it's meant to be, right? Like it's no person's pile of shit is any worse than anybody else's. It's just, it is what it is. And, and we're given what God gives us, what, what we're able to handle. Right. And, and, and then it's up to you to kind of like figure out how you're going to navigate that and figure that out. And if you're can recognize opportunities where you can be a beacon for somebody else. Um, so, yeah. Thank you so much, Jocko. Yeah, absolutely. Guys, a pleasure having you on and, uh, good luck this year and your, your goaltending bud coming up and, and, and you as well, Sean, and your uh, pursuits playing in Cincinnati and yeah, looking forward to following you both. Yeah. Thank you. Obviously we'll be seeing you this year. Hopefully the season's still on cross yeah. our fingers that continues nothing's changed yet hopefully they stick with it i mean everybody else seems to be making it happen so hopefully we can for sure appreciate you guys having me on thank you for listening to this episode of adversity university you can follow more news about Adversity University on our social media pages. Our Instagram handle is adversity underscore university. Our Twitter handle is adversity underscore UNIV. And our Facebook page is Adversity University. If you know of any high-level athlete or professional that has an interesting story of overcoming adversity and you think they should share it, you can email us at adversityuniversitytalkshow at gmail.com. You can also use that email if you are interested in becoming a sponsor for Adversity University. We look forward to bringing our listeners more content from interesting guests weekly, so stay tuned on social media to see who could be next and what our past guests are up to now.